وبعد فالتاريخ والأخبار فيه لنفس العاقل اعتبار وفيه للمستبصر استبصار كيف أتى القوم وكيف صاروا يجري على الحاضر حكم الغائب فيثبت الحق بسهم صائب وينظر الدنيا بعين العقل ويترك الجهل السلام Welcome to the Islamic History X podcast, a new podcast on the history of Islam and the Islamic hate world. I'm your host, Mahmoud Muhammad. What you just heard in the intro to our podcast was the Moroccan scholar and jurist, Sheikh Saad al-Kamadi, giving his rendition of the poetry of the great statesman and poet, Lisan al-Tin ibn al-Khatib. Lisan al-Tin ibn al-Khatib was born in Locha, modern-day Spain, during the reign of the Nasirids. He led what can only be called a colorful life. He served as vizier in the Emirate of Granada, was exiled not once but twice, and died in exile in the Maghrib. His life and times will get a full episode treatment soon. That's one you won't want to miss. In any case, his verses here deal with the power that studying history holds, how it enlightens us about the events of the past, and what people of understanding can glean from informed study of days long gone. His close friend, the historian, and all-around polymath, Ibn Khaldun, still known today for his monumental work, Al-Muqaddimah, and his theory on group solidarity, known as Asibiya, once remarked, the past resembles the future, more than one drop of rain resembles another. Which is to say, really, that both the present and the future are inextricably linked to the past. So in hoping to make sense of this, how exactly will we, embark on this journey together? And is there an efficient way to render 14 centuries of history and culture into the podcast format? The answer is tricky, but I'll do my best. Put frankly, there is too much material to cover in one lifetime, right? I'll give an example to highlight how massive even a sliver of the Islamic tradition is. Take, for example, the intellectual output of the Hadith master, the historian, the legalist, Al-Hafid Shamsuddin al-Dhahabi, writing in the 13th century. His largest work, Tariq al-Islam, edited in 1987 by Shaykh Umar Tadmuri, is published in an astonishing 50-volume edition today. And that work only accounts for his chronicle of history up to his death in the year 1348. His second most famous work, Seer Alam al-Nubala, The Lives of Noble Figures, a wonderful work as well, is edited by the late great Sheikh, Sheikh Su'aib al-Arna'ut. In a whopping 28 volumes, Al-Dhahabi wrote so meticulously across so many disciplines that to say he wrote 100 plus works is a modest estimate. Now here's the kicker. Even with such a sizable corpus under his belt, Imam Al-Dhahabi was not nearly as prolific a writer as the likes of Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi and Ibn al-Jawzi before him, or Jalalatin al-Suyuti after him. All three are said to have written upward of 400 works. It suffices to say that to attempt to adapt the history of Islam into the podcast format is a task simply too large for one team or one podcast, right? So in light of that, inshallah, that means God willing for our non-Muslim listeners, it's a phrase that I'll use very often. The approach that we will take in our podcast is thematic and not chronological, so that we can approach unique eras and locales in the history of Islam in the Islamic world without being constrained by the rigidity of time. This will allow us 
to traverse each week with a fresh set of historical eyes, so to speak. The ability to touch on topics as diverse and as wide-ranging as the development of Shafi'i fiqh in East Africa, the rich dynasties of Islam in the Malay archipelago, really in areas almost untouched right in the popular sphere, and the curious case of how, or rather why, an Anglo-Saxon king minted coins that read La ilaha illallah. That'll be a really cool episode. So what is our methodology here at Islamic History X? The way that I see it as a Muslim, um, first and foremost, and I must make this clear from the jump, I am a practicing Muslim, the accumulation, the synthesis, and the subsequent dissemination of knowledge in Islam is what the jurists call fard al-kifaya, or a communal obligation. In lay terms, and I know this isn't Islamic fiqh x, but bear with me here for a second. In lay terms, obligations in Islam are split into two distinct categories. On one hand is fard al-ayn, individual obligations, right? For example, praying, fasting. And on the other, there is fard al-kifaya, which are communal obligations. The classical example provided by the jurists is janaza, right, or the funeral procession. The case goes that the obligation to attend the janaza or the funeral procession is lifted from the individual as long as a suitable number of people from the community attend. The fundamentals of Islam and its practice, therefore, for Muslims are considered fard al-ayn, right? These are individual obligations that every Muslim must fulfill and must know. To this extent, the Prophet ﷺ says in hadith narrated by Anas ibn Malik and found in the Sunan of Ibn Majah, Seeking knowledge is an obligation upon every Muslim. Now, upon taking up the task of producing and disseminating this podcast, I am fulfilling a communal obligation, one that I hope Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward me for. I'm also doing something I love generally, right, which is speaking about Islamic history, discussing Islamic history talk about killing two birds with one stone. Now, when we look at history, we're going to look at history critically. That is to say, how the events in history actually transpired, not how they are popularly understood or sensationalized to have happened. And in the case that we do look at examples where we look at popular or sensationalized history, we will peel the layers back, right, and get to the meat of the matter. That isn't to say that hagiography doesn't have a place in the study of history. It certainly does. Uh, in fact, there's an entire body of literature in the Islamic historiographical tradition called the Manaqib. And there are many important Manaqib texts out there. For example, the Manaqib of Imam Ahmed by the aforementioned Ibn al-Jawzi. And the many Manaqib works on the life and legacy of Imam Shafi'i, written by Fakhreddin al-Razi, Ibn Abi Hatim al-Razi, no relation. And Al-Bayhaqi to name a few. What we hope to do is to introduce both serious students of history and casual listeners to a body of literature that will allow them to pursue history at their own pace. If you are a seasoned, aspiring historian, then inshallah you will find the source material as best we can provide it. The primary sources, the secondary sources, and even tertiary literature. If you are a casual listener, right, not a student of history, not a specialist, not someone who's particularly interested in history, maybe your friend recommended this to you, then this is a good starting off point, inshallah. This will be a point where you can kind of get your feet wet. And along the way, maybe the hope is you'll become 
an aspiring historian in your own right. Right. And this is a good kicking off point, as any, if I do say so myself. Now, to answer the question that I get the most often, during the long two-year buildup to this podcast, this project, people always ask, what's the X about? And discerning minds put it together pretty quickly. But other folks were kind of just stumped. Should have paid attention in math class, I guess. That the letter X represents in the field of mathematics an unknown quantity or variable is fairly well known and well documented. I want to say that it was Rene Descartes who was the first, at least in the Western tradition, to substitute X for the unknown. That is the most widely accepted theory as conceived by the Swiss American mathematician Florian Cajori. Now, Dr. Art Johnson, a retired mathematician out of BU, takes it a step further right, with this funny anecdote. He posits that the use of the letter X comes by way of accident. He says, During the printing of La Geometrie and its appendix, Discourse de la Method, or Discourses on Method, which introduced coordinate geometry, the printer reached the dilemma. While the text was being typeset, the printer began to run short of the last letter of the alphabet. He asked Descartes if it mattered whether X, Y, or Z was used in each of the book's many equations. Descartes replied that it made no difference which of the three letters was used to designate an unknown quantity. The printer selected X for most of the unknowns, since the letters Y and Z are used in the French language more frequently than is X. Now, why Descartes, the most noted philosopher mathematician of his time, would allow a lowly typesetter to decide what seems to be a significant part of his work is beyond me. Of course, I'm just kidding. Typesetters aren't lowly. In fact, Descartes wouldn't have been able to publish his discourse on method if not for the help of this typesetter. But that's beyond the point. That's just a long and drawn out explanation as to why I chose X and what it represents to me, right? Well, I wouldn't say X here represents unknown, right? Or it's not like Islamic history unknown. I would say that large swaths of the Islamic story, right? The narrative of Islam and the history of Islam by factor are relegated to the periphery, right? This is the history of Islam in East Africa and West Africa in many parts of Southeast Asia. And there is a type of imperial history that often gets a look and is talked about, right? The history of the Abbasids, the Umayyads, the Ottomans. There's even a new project right now chronicling the history of the Mamluks. And there are a lot of great podcasts on the subject area, and I'll recommend some of them at the end. But hopefully this podcast will be able to look at the areas that are glossed over, right? Those areas that make for interesting tidbits or footnotes, but never a full monograph or never a full episode. And in doing so, inshallah, we're going to really seek to expand for both Muslims and non-Muslims the extent of what Islam has come to represent across the globe. In doing this, we both complicate and in a sense problematize the existing and dominant narrative about the nature of Islamic history. And this gets to the heart of the question of whose history is made paramount and important, whose history is not, whose history is valued, and whose history is not. And while this is my humble attempt, inshallah, to do so, I hope that we'll get inquisitive minds asking some really important questions. As the host of this podcast, I cannot act as the adjudicator of what you should or should not believe about any number of things. 
I will, however, strive to present the facts, to give you a nuanced take on how the events of the past inform the present. And undoubtedly, we will get into areas and topics of contention. That's just the nature of history. And when that happens, I will do my best to remain fair and balanced. History without contention is not history. And so much of history is wrapped up in how different people remember the same events, often drastically very differently, and understandably so. However, I hold that when people are historically literate, that is to say they understand and can contextualize the past, they tend to make better decisions in the present. And by virtue of that, they secure a better future for themselves and for posterity, which is an interesting tie-in into the next episode, titled Ibn Khaldun, The Black Death, and What Cyclical History Can Teach Us About COVID-19. And this is probably a good place to stop for an introduction episode, but I'm not going to leave you guys hanging, so let's get into it just a little bit. You can consider this a pre-episode. Ibn Khaldun is often called the father of a few different disciplines, among them historiography and sociology. It's just a testament to how much of a polymath the guy was. In fact, one of the reasons we know so much about him is because he penned an autobiography, aptly titled Ta'rif ibn Khaldun wa rihalatuhu qarban wa sharqan or Getting to know ibn Khaldun, his journey west and east. He wasn't known for his unobtrusive humility. We mentioned that for sociology, right, he was the pioneer of an idea called the Asibiya. And here I'm drawing on the work of Russell Hopley of Bowdoin College. In 2016, Dr. Hopley published an essay called Plague, Demographic Upheaval, and Civilizational Decline. Did he know something we didn't, seeing as that's literally what we're living through right now in 2020, four years later? In any case, it's an essay that looks at how Ibn Khaldun and other historians reacted to the Black Death. But to the point, the crux of Asibiya is that the rise and decline of groups can be essentialized into how strong their sense of group solidarity is. If a group possesses a strong sense of Asibiya, they will rise to meet the challenges of the times. And when they lose that sense of solidarity, they will begin to decline. So it's safe to say that Ibn Khaldun's view of history is cyclical in nature. And he's not alone in that regard, as many Muslim historians adopted this idea, right? They chalked up the rise and fall of the dynasties to the rise and fall of their group solidarity. An example that comes up a lot in Muslim historiography is the rise of the Bedouin Arabs in the Hejaz. They came to power by virtue of their solidarity and their zeal for Islam and only lost that when their solidarity began to decline. Right, And that allowed other outsiders, Persians, Turks, other peoples to come in and to seize right, the reins of power. Now, this is an idea that, while having its merits, is not above critique. And we'll get into that in a later episode. But essentially, what really interests me is Ibn Khaldun's take on how history was done by his predecessors. That is how they wrote and thought about history. In the Muqaddimah, he mentions that what they did is a little more than gossip. History poorly done, really. And this is by no fault of their own. 
Rather, this is the system that they have come to understand history under. And so as a result of this, they have reproduced history as they have come to know it. Now, he caught some flack for denigrating the great historians that came before him, but his critique and the backlash against that critique make for an interesting dynamic for sure. But the most interesting thing I think about this essay is how it places Ibn Khaldun in the context of a global epidemic, not unlike the one that we are living through right now, right? The Black Death and COVID, you can't really compare them, but there are definitely parallels. Ibn Khaldun lost both of his parents to the Black Death at the age of 17. And this set him on a path really of wandering, right? He left his native home and began to wander the Muslim world. And it took him to places as far and wide as the heartland of Iberia, to the Maghrib, to Egypt. Now, because of his ability to travel and to interact with so many different people, Ibn Khaldun then began to develop his concept of Asubiyah. That was brought on by his interaction with so many variant and differing peoples. Now, we're really going to get into the, the meat of the matter on the next episode. We're going to look at how disease acts as an accelerant for the rise and the decline of civilizations. We hope that was an adequate introduction to the Islamic History X podcast. We've put a lot of time, dedication, and effort into producing this podcast, and to say that we have high hopes for it is really an understatement. Inshallah, week in, week out, we will do our best to provide quality content. And we really appreciate the love and support you guys have shown us on Twitter and Instagram. Our socials are Islamic History X on all platforms. You can follow us there for updates, inshallah. A deep and heartfelt thank you from the crew, the researchers, the writing staff, and our wonderful producer, Ian Thompson. He's a maestro. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't hesitate to leave a review. That's how our podcast gains traction. So write something nice. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you on the flip. Salam.